Welcome to the Health Enthusiasm Podcast, a panel discussion on behaviors, innovations, and trends in health and self-care. My name is Christophe Choquet. I'm the author of the book called Health Enthusiasm and a global keynote speaker on the future of health and self-care business. Every month, I discuss with a panel of experts the positive changes that are shaping our health and happiness. And today, we have a full panel. Calling in from Barcelona is our digital health connector, Aline Noiset. Hola. Our American in Paris and medical expert in digital health, Aditi Joshi. Hello, everyone. From London, customer experience and research expert, Krupa Sutar. Hi, everybody. And last but not least, from Ghent, Belgium, human experience expert, Mo Zouina. Hi, Greta. Together, we want to amplify the health enthusiasm that we see in articles, new business ventures, or simply even in the world around us. Now, if you are new to the show, you might wonder what health enthusiasm is all about. Well, health enthusiasm is the aspiration that we all have to be healthy and happy. And as a result of this, every company or organization is now more than ever focused on making their customers healthy and happy. So tell me, Aline, what health enthusiasms did you witness in the past months? So like, I would like to share one that I actually experienced myself. So Sanitas is my insurance here. So it's like the, the, the Spanish Bupa. They did a program called Healthy Cities. So to encourage people to walk. And what I really liked about that, it's like we were asked to do 6,000 steps a day and we were part of a team. If we were doing those 6,000 steps a day, like as individuals and also as teams, so we were run by teams. I was part of Team Cat uh, Catalonia, the region where I live. So Sanitas committed to plant more trees. And I find it was a very, very nice initiative and really something that motivated me to walk. You know, maybe that's something that I need to do those steps every day. But with this, I really had the, the goal and the, 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 uh, the energy to do it. And I was super proud, like to, to reach the goal and that trees will be planted because of that. That's amazing. And so you did share your data with the insurance company. Well, my steps, yes. Yeah. The reason why I'm asking is because my enthusiasm has to do with that as well. I think one of the things that I always get when I speak is that, yeah, but what if you share all those data? What will insurance companies do with it? And so my standard answer is they would love to have that information because right now they don't have any information. So they take a lot of margins, in my opinion, in my belief, into how they set their premiums, their, the cost of their insurance. And so the more data that they have, the better they, that, that they can actually build their insurance products and even put better prices out and avoid any exclusions out there. And so I recently read about a startup that is called Foxo Technologies, who's actually using epigenetic technology and artificial intelligence to really determine somebody's individual biological age and also the rate of cell aging as well. And so with that, they want to really help people underwriting the best life insurance for them and even try to avoid to deny anybody uh, from coverage. So it's a bit in the same field. I, I really like that idea because I've been talking about this for six, seven years in my keynote that this will eventually happen. So I'm super excited to see one startup being focused on that, even though epigenetic technology is, is still um, very early days. But I really, I really like that, um, that idea. What health enthusiasms did you, uh, did you see? 
in the aftermath of COVID, I've seen, you know, social media companies really contextualize how relevant they can stay. And we saw that mental health and uh, self-image uh, got a serious hit during COVID. And we saw brands being really opportunistic, weight loss brand being really opportunistic, trying to target more on weight loss. 89% increase on Pinterest, which is the 14th largest uh, social media. And so Pinterest took the responsibility and kind of counterbalance that with more body positivity messages. And uh, I think it's really interesting how a social media platform looks at the entire context and try to serve the greater good and try to be a place where people remain healthy, both mentally and physically, and kind of inspire them to go in the direction they want. I really love that they took on responsibility. I think it's very good for the brand. too. Very interesting how Tizesma indeed. Cooper, what did you notice recently? So I came across the report by Apple, and it's all centered on getting users of Apple products to empower themselves on their own health journeys rather than being actually passengers. And they discussed in, in the report, they had four key areas. They talked about how the health will actually bring everything around their health together um, so they can view all their latest data and whatnot. They talk about the Apple Watch and how it allows users to become guardians for their own health. And then they also have... Um, a discussion on health outcomes and how they can use um, aspects such as nudging, um, so behavioural science techniques to help people take better care of themselves. So that's from a user's perspective. And then what they also have the ambition to do is then to take this data, which they hope that users will obviously consent to share with. So just like you were discussing earlier, Christoph, around sharing data and empowering people, um, what they hope is that actually by once they gather this data, they can then share this data and use this data to help the, the users, but also then um, apply it to medical purposes so that, for example, doctors can work with their patients to track them in between hospital visits or general visits so that they can improve their um, health outcomes. So I thought that was really interesting. It's going to be obviously very interesting how this moves forward and obviously all the data sharing and privacy concerns, but uh, looking forward to seeing where this goes. Yeah, it's been in the in the works for a, for a while, and I, I really believe that Apple will be one of the major players in the future of health. But there's another player that is moving into health mm -hmm. radically fast, isn't it, Aditi? Yeah, so the big news uh, that I found blew up my Twitter and LinkedIn and probably yours too, is that Amazon bought a company called One Medical for $3.9 billion. And for our non-American listeners, One Medical is a primary care service that has a concierge model. So you become a member, get faster care, access to labs, and also telemedicine. So a lot of the discussion was really about the fact that Amazon now owns primary care service, a telemedicine platform. They have a pharmacy. They obviously have a grocery store as well. They have a huge distribution center. And so the, the, the idea of them owning all of that without understanding what they're going to do for it is really interesting. There have been a number of predictions. Maybe they're going to have a one-stop shop for everything. Are they going to set up centers? Is it going to be virtual? Uh, are they going to get into insurance, which would be the next obvious step? And part of this discussion is also because of a lot of the fear about the recent changes to digital health in investments 
and the decrease in investments and what's going to happen. And for a long time, everyone has been, have been, has been talking about all of the acquisitions that will likely happen from these bigger companies. And so we're seeing that happen. Nobody is really surprised by it per se, but it's really down that same road that Krupa mentions with Apple. And so we'll see what Amazon is going to do for it as well. I'm sure we'll keep talking about this within this podcast as we're going to see a lot more of this. Yeah, I'm pretty sure interesting um, things happening. And indeed, it is it is a health enthusiasm world. So many positive changes are making our world a little healthier and happier every day. And uh, yeah, me too. I really enjoy watching these changes unfold. I analyze them and try to understand the broader impact of these changes. And I even write a newsletter about it. It's called It's a Health Enthusiasm World. So if you're interested, go and discover them on healththusiasm.com. But... Every month during the Healthusiasm podcasts, I'll recap one particular newsletter for the panel to debate. And this week's newsletter is Digital Humans as Healthcare Providers. Let's get into it. So basically, the newsletter is about the metaverse. We all heard about the immersive virtual world. And there's a lot being said about, there's a lot being written about. But sometimes what I miss in all of these stories is the humans that will be living in there or will be working in there or who simply will be in there, the digital humans. And so I wrote this newsletter explaining how I see these digital, digital humans evolving. And basically, there are two types of digital humans, in my opinion. On the one hand side, you have the digital doubles, which I, which I call, which basically are a digital version of our real life person. And on the other hand side, you have the virtual humans, which are not a digital double. They're just like unique to this virtual environment. These are virtual humans that don't exist in real life, only in the virtual reality. You might know them as, you know, the, the virtual assistants, the chatbots, but also the virtual influencers on Instagram who have several millions of followers. But also maybe solutions like Replica, who are chatbots that grow on you. And the more that you talk to them, the more that they become unique to you. So virtual individuals for real. The thing is that we are today in a situation where millions, hundreds of millions of people are actually using these digital humans in these virtual worlds. And the visual technology that realizes this is really becoming so amazing that it becomes hard to distinguish whether the person you're seeing on your screen is a real person or actually a virtual human. And so they almost look human. Basically, there was a research done recently that said that these virtual or digital humans look more trustworthy more trustworthy than actual humans because you don't have those micro expressions, right? That um, if you see contempt or sadness or whatever, these virtual humans don't have them. So people put more trust in those in, into those digital humans. And so they dare to share a lot more to those digital humans. Also, the artificial intelligence behind it becomes smarter. The technology behind it makes it really as if you are talking to a real human being. Actually, there's one out there, Xiaoche, which is a micro Microsoft Cortana solution in China that has been used by 600 million people that actually can interrupt yourself. So it listens and if it doesn't agree, it will not wait until you're finished to process the data. It will actually interrupt yourself. So technology is going really fast. And you can imagine that in this virtual world for a healthcare setting or any health and self-care setting, that these digital humans can be used for advice. 
They can be used for coaching. They can be used for mental health and companionship. And they basically just provide some sort of access. Now, the thing is, when we're talking digital and healthcare, the remark that you always get is that, well, you know, digital can't really do a lot in healthcare because healthcare is primarily driven by human interaction, right? But now we have digital humans that almost look as good, as real as real humans, and they actually generate a lot more trust with the one that is dealing with it. And so in my keynote, and I know that Aditi and Aline, you've seen that keynote that I brought recently. In my keynote, I explain how these digital humans can actually bring back a part of the human interaction that we lost in real life. Because while we used to have a village physician that was very nearby, that we knew a lot, that was very convenient, that was part of the community with whom we had a meaningful connection, who was very, you know, authentic and empathic. Well, that village physician actually doesn't exist anymore. It's not that easily uh, attainable anymore. And so we are now dealing with large hospitals who are focused on processes and governance and all of that, which makes that the human interaction is a lot less human maybe even today. And so in my ID, the, the way that I write about it in the newsletter and what I bring during my keynote is that maybe, just maybe, these digital humans can bring back a little bit of the human interaction that we lost in the real world. And yeah, maybe I'll go to you, Aditi, because we I know you were present for the most part of that keynote, but we didn't have the chance to talk about it. So I'm curious to know, what were your thoughts on, on, on this ID? Oh, man. Well, you know, I live in the world of telemedicine. And so virtual care is really where I work. And so I have a lot of thoughts on this. I could probably speak to you throughout it for three hours, which I will not. But I want to first go back to wait, one thing that one point you made. I think it's an important point that there is a lot more trust in these types of interactions. But I want to be very clear. There's a difference between trusting and being able to interact as a patient and have that ability for that entity to interact back with you in a meaningful healthcare way. So we're not at a place yet where they can do that. So while we're seeing a lot more of triage algorithms for AI that can help at least bring patients to the right level of care, maybe give ask, answer some questions, a lot of that funneling still ends up going to a physical person. Do I think that that's useful and maybe patient, patients do find it a better ability to be open and trust and maybe we can get better information at the other end of it because they have that trust? Yes, potentially, but we have to be able to understand that that's not going to be the end all if there is no other person or other ability to standardize it in a clinical manner. I'll stop there for now. Okay. Aline, what did you feel of it when you saw the keynote? What, what was your reaction? I was fascinated by it. I was really inspired and, and I, I can see like a, those digital humans being implemented in the future. I think there's a real need for that. If you think especially like, like psychologists, for instance, I think there's a need for that. And it's something that may be hard for someone who, who needs help first to find help, you know, find the right person and the person that will understand you and be a good match for you. And I think that's something difficult today. And I feel when you were presenting like replica, for instance, that that could actually be a, a great solution. You know, someone that will listen to you, that would be here for you, that will actually match what you need. I think there's a bright day coming around that. 
I see Moger being very eager to jump in here, right? It's a very, as Aditi said, it's a very layered question. There's a lot of questions that kind of pop up in my mind for which we do not have the time. But I think if we start with care uh, overall, you know, care has different levels. It's being recognized, being listened to, and then there's the decisional part, right? Reality might be overrated in the future. I've talked to a youngster that says, you know, but do you know that this is not real? She says, I don't care. Because the only thing we have is our imagination. I don't, you know, if we look at a horror movie, we're scared. That's the advantage and the inconvenience of our brain. You know, when we worry, we worry about things that are not real, but we still feel that emotion. So I think, you know, virtual and real might be overrated in the future if we look at the next generation. And then we just have to look at, you know, what is care about. And then my friend Gary Vaynerchuk says the real brands that will really know, will know exactly when human interaction is necessary and when machines, you know. And I think if you know where that patient is in the journey and you might be able to trigger whatever or serve that patient, as Aline says, you know, quicker in a more scalable way and then know exactly when human interaction might be, might be valuable, where the AI is not ready to, to do that, I think, you know, it's going to be incredible. Gotta be amazing. Yeah, Aline, just jump in, please. Yeah. What do you think? This idea of like talking to non humans, I think already exists. Like, if you think about now, so now is like the, this small uh, robot, like Paper's brother, and if you remember them. So they've been used with patients or with kids with autism, for instance. And those kids wouldn't talk to a human person, but they would talk to now. They would have an interaction with now. And like also a few weeks ago, I was talking to a friend of mine, and she was saying that. A son like was sad one day. He, he like, yeah, it was really sad. He wouldn't talk to the mom. He wouldn't talk to any human, but he went and talked to the dog and just tell his, uh, his source to the dog. So I think we already hear so that I think the adoption maybe won't be so difficult. Maybe unconsciously, we already like trust or go towards like the, the non humans. Yeah. And I think what I've heard from um, Apple as well, because we mentioned Apple earlier, is that already six or seven years ago, they hired a lot of psychologists because they've noticed that so many people talk to Siri about their day and how they felt during their day. So, I mean, there's a lot going on there and it's it's creeping into our lives some way or another. And it might change our customer experience. I'm curious to know, Krupa, how do you look at, at this from a customer experience expert or even from a teacher point of view? Yeah, I think... I mean, for me, I think it's very exciting. Looking at it from a research aspect, things that pop into mind here is how can, if this, if it is going to be the future and it is going to become ever more present, how can we make sure it's accessible to all? Because already you're having healthcare systems which aren't accessible to everybody. So what about the people who are the most vulnerable who actually need this? and um, need healthcare when they can't access it? And what about those who may be digitally excluded, for example? How can you make sure that they're getting access to it? So there's some thoughts that pop into mind there. And then in terms of just generally speaking, there's the other aspect of, yes, they may be more trustworthy, but actually in times of need, people often want that touch and touch is something that actually physical will actually help people and calm them down and reassure them so how do you then integrate the two together so i would be quite interested to actually see how that goes and what happens and and again like um aline was mentioning around uh, pets 
for example. Yes, in the UK, we you know we have um, in person, but uh, real therapy dogs, and the drive of that is okay. Yes, you're going to you, you're going to them because actually it's the touch element, the physical, the holding part of it. So I'm just really fascinated to see where this goes from a, a more accessible inclusive way i think it's very exciting though yeah i fully fully agree i mean there's there's so much going on and i don't think it's or it's it's going to be and i will need to find the right uh, right use cases what do you think aditi I just wanted to add one point, because I think when we talk about these things and changing our lives, it's very different from saying it's going to change healthcare. From a clinical perspective, this becomes a question of what Grupo was saying, who's going to be able to access it, and really, what are we going to do with it? We are very far within a medical environment to be able to use this in a meaningful way in a way that's going to actually change how we practice medicine, how we teach medicine, et cetera. Because at the moment, it is not actually high quality enough or the images are not, and not because people aren't trying to do it. It's just for what we need it for in medicine, it's just not there. And we may not ever get there in a way that in-person care actually does. So if someone can create that, that would be interesting. I just don't see how that will do it really meaningfully in a full-on in-person interaction. You'll see it sooner or later for sure, but we'll see how it goes. Thank you for that discussion, everybody. Let's move to the next segment of the Health Enthusiasm podcast. Is it something, nothing, or everything? So every month, one of the panelists brings an idea, innovation or evolution forward that sparked their enthusiasm. The rest of the panel will then debate and share their opinion about it. Do they find it something, nothing or everything? Krupa, what sparked your enthusiasm this month? In England, uh, a very exciting few weeks. It's really the launch of the Women's Health Strategy. So a few weeks ago, we announced our first ever Women's Health Ambassador. So that's Dame Leslie Regan. And just on the 20th of July, so a couple of days ago, we published the first ever Women's Health Strategy. And that came about a call for evidence where over 100,000 individuals across England replied on key topics which are important to them and where we as individuals, members of the public, feel that we should be uh, focusing our efforts on women's health. Because as we, we know, there's not been as much attention as there has been on men's health. So they launched a strategy and there have been some key areas of focus that they've identified that they're going to work on over the next few years and firstly, it's to get a better understanding of female health-specific conditions. For example, endometriosis. It can the average length of time it takes for a woman to be diagnosed in England is up to around seven years, I believe, and sometimes even longer. So, how can uh, medics be trained to actually uh, recognise this earlier, so that it impacts women? They're able to actually uh, attend their um, normal daily life without this having such an impact on them. Uh, They also want to tackle the the data gap as well and getting better um, access to data of women's health generally. 
There's also going to be more, I was quite shocked on this one, but better training for medical students so that when they're trained, they're also getting equal training on women's health as they are on men's health. So that was actually quite interesting. And then also another fantastic one, which is improving access to fertility services. So in the UK, we've often had what's known as the, if you require reproductive assistance. We have have what's known as the IVF postcode lottery. And depending on where you live in England or across the UK, that determines how much access you get to fertility. So for example, for fertility help. So for example, some local authorities give you one round of IVF, others will give you three rounds. And some you may not get any access at all because you have children from a pre-exist uh, from an earlier marriage. But they're also then going to be allowing same-sex couples now, introducing uh, fertility uh, services for same-sex couples, which is just amazing. And also recognising parents who have lost their child before the age of 24 weeks. So having a birth certificate so that they have recognised that Yes, this baby was born and uh, unfortunately had passed away. So there, there will be that. And then also having uh, just women having better access to higher quality information. So that's their ambition. I personally think that this is groundbreaking for us. And I'm super excited to see what, what happens next. So anybody want to react to that? I think it's very promising. Um, I also see that in the NHS, 76% of uh, workers in the NHS are female. So I think that will help. But I think in the curriculum, it might be really interesting to update the curriculum on diagnosing and redefining what care is. I think what really happens, you know, the things we see in the practice of healthcare medicine does not find his way back into adapting the curriculum. There is there is still a gap where you're kind of confronted with kind of traditional curriculum. I don't see a lot of a, agility in updating the curriculum to new ways of delivering care. And then people just being confronted on the workflow with the new reality. And I think there's, there's also something really interesting to do to have a more agile, a more connected way of adapting the curriculum to cater to, to the needs of our society today. So, Mo, do you think it's something, nothing or everything? I think it's something, but I think there's a lot of work to do, as uh, Krupa said. Okay, Aline, something, nothing or everything? For me, I would say it's, it's some something. It's very important work, like, as we know, uh, traditionally, like, all the drugs were developed, like, using data from, like, black men. The women are different, so maybe the treatments that we have today are not so efficient on, on women because they have been developed for, for men. I found out, for instance, I didn't know that, but the symptoms for a heart attack are slightly different from a man to a, to a woman. So those things are important, and that's why that work is very it's very important. But for, yeah, for me, it would be something because we also need to take into consideration the ethnicity of the people. So that would be maybe like a step a, a step forward. But I wish like other countries are going to follow the the initiatives from the UK. Yeah, absolutely. And so, why wouldn't you say that it is everything then? If I hear you, is there something like missing or just putting it yeah, on the spot I think here. the gender is just one part like ethnicity is also very very important and I think that's where we need to complement the gender with ethnicity culture yeah I also think it's something I almost would say nothing but that would be too rude because I do believe that there's a big gender gap and I think we, there, there, there's an, a definite obvious need for focus on women's health I'm just not always a big fan of 
specific governmental actions. And I don't always believe in, in how big of an impact that they can actually have. Um, that's why I say it's something because it will have some impact. But I do believe that everything, and I call this the femtech force also, um, I do believe that it is uh, very important that the, this new focus on women and women's health, I think is radically changing the way that we will be doing healthcare in the future. And it's a, it's a bit of a bold statement here, but I, what I like about startups, for example, and you also see this a little bit in this example by the NHS, but what I like about startups is that they, in the femtech space, is that they, they look at health in a different way. They don't look at a specific disease. They look at, at, at it from a, a point of being women and how can you create actually a better experience for women as a whole, not just for that specific disease. They go beyond just a medical focus. They think about what it's important in their life and they look at it from a more holistic point of view. And I really think that in all these examples, the Maven Clinic and, and, and so many others, they really are approaching healthcare from an entirely different standpoint. And I do see this a little bit here in this in this example, Krupa, but I miss this. I don't know, maybe it's just a lack of trust from my side. That's why I, I tend to say, is it something? Yes, probably. It might be nothing maybe because governmental actions don't really have a, an impact. IDT, something, nothing or everything. I'm going to go against most of you and say this is everything because I'm going to also put in perspective that we're talking about tech and you were bringing up the point that tech and femtech has really changed things. Actually, practically, if you want to change health systems, the way physicians practice, the way things are reimbursed, that's not going to do it. Governmental action like this, especially in a place which has an NHS, is going to do it. And there's two things I really want to stress in this that is going to make a larger difference if it all goes well, right? Is that the stress on the research and figuring out what the actual differences are. So Aline, yes, having a different symptoms for a heart attack, they're actually very different depending on who it is. There are racial differences too, but between men and women, it's actually very different. And then having that information is going to change things. And two, the changing in uh, affecting the curriculum and medical education is going to have a huge impact. Medicine in general, you know, when we start out in medical school, we learn one thing and then we go through our training. We call it residency and fellowship in the U.S. and it's other words in other countries. And then we can become attendings or um, And by that point, you have gone down this path and you're learning it in such a specific way that by the end of it, for example, I'm in emergency medicine. That's how I look and I look at everything. But that's not how a cardiologist looks at things. That's not how a surgeon looks at things. We look at things differently when we bring it to the table. But medical education, you need to get them in medical school because this is when you can actually affect the way that they look at healthcare and the way they look at patients. And so I think it's actually really smart that they're doing it that way. So I'm going to say this is everything for women's health in the way that they're at least planning it out. And doing it in this manner will make more of a difference in the day-to-day physician's life, clinician's life, than really a health tech innovation. Great. Well, thank you, Krupa. This is clearly something, potentially even everything. But now it's time for something else. In this health enthusiasm world, we see the boundaries of industries blurring between the worlds of healthcare, wellness and consumer businesses. You can see how consumer businesses are slowly moving into wellness and healthcare space, while the healthcare industry is paying more attention to what is happening outside their own industry. This brings the following question. What ID, what innovation or what evolution from one industry can be worthwhile for another industry? In other words, what should we bring inside out or 
outside in. So tell me, Mo, what's the idea, innovation or evolution that you would consider bringing inside out or outside in? Well, I'm not being original. We will talk about Tesla. <laughs> in, uh, I think, you know, thanks to this podcast, you know, I've looked at, uh, at the major leaders in, in pharma and I've looked at what their mission statement was and what their tagline was. And it's always about better lives and better, you know, patient experience, putting the patient central. But I didn't see any socially relevant themes. And when we look at Tesla, Tesla is kind of serving the greater good. And the Tesla mission also with SpaceX, for instance, is to, to forward the advance of sustainable transport, right? And what Elon Musk did is, is just free all the patents, all the innovation they had were just for grabs for anyone who wanted to use it for good, right? So th that brings us to the business model, uh, right? So I haven't seen taglines of major pharma companies or healthcare companies by saying we want to make health sustainable. We want to make health affordable. We want to make health accessible, you know? So it's kind of, you know, business centric and it would be great if some companies and it'll probably be tech companies and not necessarily, you know, pharma companies that kind of get inspired of what Tesla does and just, you know, shares it. And I think it would also make everyone sharp to stay, you know, on the innovative side if you just create something that is good and it's conditional. That's very important. Elon Musk says, if anyone wants to use it for good, we will not sue them, you know, but if you use it for bad, we will sue you. So I think that's a really inspiring thing. And I think it also kind of gathers all the innovation and also makes, you know, would help us make healthcare way more affordable, scalable, and as Krupa says, more accessible. So inside out, outside in, do we need to bring this into healthcare? Anybody want to react to this? I'll start really quickly with just saying that I feel like every single movie out there talks about how good intentions can lead to something being used for bad. And I'm not saying that this is not a good thing necessarily, but uh, you have to be also really careful with what you're using and what it's going to be used for. But I do like the idea of opening up patents. This is especially true for pharmaceuticals, for example, right? That has been a huge issue, being able to afford it in many countries or being able to even distribute it or create them. And so that would change a lot of lives. And that's a very classic example. Yeah, interesting. I mean, I've, I've been working with, with pharmaceutical companies for about over 20 years now. And the discussion of getting rid of patents or the risk of, of losing patents has been in the stakes for, for so many years. So it's, it's always been a discussion. It's never really happened so far. I'm not quite sure whether pharma is actually open to it. I, I do like to think about that potential ID indeed, because what if we at some point, you know, we just open up data and open up patents so that we more quickly can distribute, either innovate or distribute the innovation in itself? Because right now there's a lot going on when we, when, when we talk about finding that, that innovation, keeping it for itself, taking the time to distribute it. But I think that if we could distribute the innovation itself or if we could at least innovate quicker and then make sure that if we distribute it, that we focus on, on there and a, di and a differentiation and a competitive differentiation, even experience differently, that might be more interesting because the innovation will be, will be out there. It's just the, the experience and the distribution that will make the difference. 
that would be my take on it real quickly. Maybe just following up, I think it's absolutely right you say. Most so-called innovations from pharma companies are incremental. We see, uh, you know, Salesforce is saying, you know, for that kind of patient, there's a, a kind of incremental, you know, response rate or overall survival. And that kind of inhibits choice, you know, what is the right. So I think if patents would be opened, it would make innovation really differentiating, right? You would really come up with new things rather than having a lot of products that are the same, but incrementally a little bit different. I don't want to be in the shoes of a physician to know exactly which kind of drug really, really is best for which kind of patient. And so I think if we can facilitate choice in some ways, it would, you know, it would make it easier for, for physicians to choose and then really push innovation forward. Just to add one second to that, it would also make it additive, right? So people then would have access to improve on the things already created everything can move forward faster. Yeah, I think so too. Cooper? I think there's an interesting one of how they they go about actually doing this, the logistics of it. Companies can often be very cagey. They don't want to share. I know it's an open culture that they're trying to promote and ultimately it will benefit the public. There's also going to be a commercial gain. So I think it's going to be interesting how they actually, who does this? Is it going to become that there's going to become um, almost like a monopoly of, of players in the market? I would be interested to see how that goes. How do you mean a monopoly of players then? Do you have some who share and therefore they share together and therefore they become more visible? Yeah. yeah. So who will who will oblige it and, and how will this be set up? And yeah, I don't think it will ever happen, but it would be a great thing. Aline, what's your thought on it? In the tech space, we, we often don't see patents or patents be more open. And pharma or in healthcare, we haven't seen exactly. it that much, right? But listening to you, I was thinking that maybe it would be a, a good opportunity for like developing countries, you know, to get access to treatments and technologies that they can't really afford today or that, they're not, that, that are not re- reaching them and could really benefit the, the populations over there. Yeah, I totally agree. I think one of the arguments that healthcare and definitely pharma is using, I guess, to say that we need patents is because the incentive would be gone to innovate. I think it's it's exactly the opposite, because if data is out there and if everybody can innovate and we can all work together, it will go way faster. And I think exactly the innovation should be in what we lay on top of it, the experience, the uh, the distribution, etc., and and not just the innovation in itself. Maybe that might be a, a good idea. So with all of these smart words on this uh, incredibly challenging topic, I'd like to wrap up this uh, Health Reasons podcast for this month. If you like this show, don't forget to hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast platform. By the way, you can also find us on the Shift Forward Health channel. It's a podcast channel of thought leaders who are actively designing and building the health and self-care business of tomorrow. For now, I'd like to thank our own thought leaders for their insights and health enthusiasm. Thank you, Aditi Joshi. Aline Noze, Krupa Sutar, and Mo Zuwina. My name is Christophe Joquet. We are the Healthusiasm podcast, and we'd love to see you again next month for some more Healthusiasm. Ciao. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please spread the word. Tell your colleagues to tune in for all the awesomeness, then leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. This show is produced by Shift Forward Health, the channel for changemakers. Subscribe to Shift Forward Health on your favorite podcast app, and you'll be subscribed to our entire library of shows. See our full lineup at shiftforwardhealth.com. One subscription, all the podcasts you need, and it's all for free. 
And remember, we might have a lot of work to do in healthcare, but we'll get there faster together. Thanks again. Thank you.